Well, hello there, and welcome to Fuzz on Film, where me, Drew, and over there, Scott, hello, have been busting our ass as film podcasters for 12 years now, and not one invitation have we received a movie premiere. So we're not going to cover films anymore in protest. Yes. Not until my ass gets unbusted. So very painful. Yeah, I had nowhere to go with that. Just after the whole thing, totally ridiculous. So I wanted to get a bit of fun of it. But yes, hello, welcome. This is the intermission slots, the one where we talk about the stuff, what we've done, seen without any particular theme, other than it was what we saw. Yes. I mean, largely that's what we do anyway, but you know, yeah. the, the other ones have a bit more structure. This is the stuff we've watched in between the structured bits. Yeah, just to reassure you, we do only talk about things that we have seen. We don't make up our reviews of films yet. If you pay us sufficient, we probably would, but yeah. Are you listening, Disney? Yes. <laughs> to it, let, let us begin to do these things that we claim to do. And we'll begin with Rocketman, the biopic of... Of the person who forgot to silence their phone, sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm going to begin with Rocketman, the biopic of Mr. Reginald Dwight. Scott, take it away. Yes, or better known, of course, as Elton John, who has never been an artist that I ever reach for, for reasons I don't think I'd properly examined until the release of this film. And I think it's because at the time my musical tastes were developing and, well, let's be honest, ossifying. Um, <laughs> Elton was bashing out saccharine drivel like Candle in the Wind and Circle of Life, which I'd be quite pleased if I never heard again in my entire life. Thank you so very much. Yes, once um, was honestly too many for <laughs> at least one of those. Yes. Perhaps somewhere in my mind was a vague appreciation of some of his earlier work, but in general, the amount of brain cycles I devote to Elton John in a typical year is zero. Therefore, not all that fussed about a film that chronicles his rise to stardom and subsequent collapse into a pile of drugs. Yet, that's what I watched in Rocketman with Taron Egerton wearing the comical shades of the showman in later years, although well, we are also looking at his early life, the discovery of his talent for the piano and a family life that's at best cold, particularly from his idiot hole of a father. We jump around in time through the framing device of an addict support group where he relates his life story in typically fabulous regalia. Through his songwriting pairing with Jamie Bell's Bernie Toppins and romantic pairing with Richard Madden's John Reed, the huge success that came with breaking into the American market and how he turned to drugs and casual sex to deal with the pressure of all this. That, at least, is it in a nutshell. If you want more details, then there's plenty of Wikipedia articles out there on Elton's life. Uh, This is not, uh, by any measure, a complete history of his life, nor an entirely accurate one. The usual cinematic shortcuts have been made. Uh, But I read an article by John in The Guardian a couple of weeks back where he says this has the emotional truth of it, at least, and I'm inclined to believe it. It's not sugarcoating or minimising any of his less-than-exemplary behaviour or how he was treating other people and himself at his lowest. So it's not unvarnished exactly, but it's light-coating at worst. Um, it does have a good amount of charm, and Egerton is very good in the lead role. It weaves the best of John's early career songs into the narrative in as organic a way as you're going to get for this sort of thing, and I found it to be a surprising amount of fun. Um, in that regard, it's all like Bohemian Rhapsody, except without having to ignore the whole sexual assault of a minor thing. And indeed, in Dexter Fletcher, the films share an unofficial director after Singer went to ground at the tail end of filming Bohemian Rhapsody. So the boy from Press Gang, done good. Um, a lot like when I went to Bohemian Rhapsody, I had no particular expectations for liking any of it, and it turned out to be very enjoyable indeed. Um, you know, solid drama, lots of well-produced songs, uh, production tunes, and yeah, it, it all just worked quite well. I'm quite easily recommending this to anyone who even 
someone with no interest whatsoever in Elton John, as long as you have a bare tolerance for some of his music, then you should get some joy out of this. Um, it's perhaps not as broadly palatable as Bohemian Rhapsody. It's got a few more spiky edges where it's uh, not not rounding the story down so much to appeal to a broader audience. This one's a bit, perhaps a little bit closer to the truth, dare we say it. But yeah, for my money, well, that almost makes it a better film. Perhaps slightly less enjoyable, but probably better in a number of regards. Yeah, definitely worth uh, giving it a go too. Bohemian Rhapsody was what was very much in my mind when this was coming out. Mm-hmm. That it seemed to be a sheer similarity, certainly. Mm-hmm. However, while I thoroughly enjoyed Bohemian Rhapsody, even though it bears sod all relation to anything that happened, I think, really. Yes. Uh, I love Queen's music and always have. Yeah. Elton John's music is there, I guess. I could probably name three songs that weren't the two you mentioned. <laughs> And that that's the problem. Like I don't. Anytime I've ever seen Elton John be interviewed, he always seems like a bit of an asshat. Mm. And I don't. So, and then there's a the whole candle in the wind thing, which made me, you know, despise him <laughs> because that sodding song and this sodding country. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I just had no interest in his music, so I made no effort to see this, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I was slightly turned off by his completely egregious turn in the second Kingsman film although the fact that Taron Egerton's playing him there maybe explain that a little bit more than it did it just seems so out of order at the time yeah but yeah you've given me some hope I might check it out I've seen it's, I sort of feel like I don't like Taron Egerton until I watch him again and it's like I should not quite like him um, I'm not quite sure what's going on there he's actually quite likeable in the surprisingly good uh, Eddie the Eagle Yes. Which may actually also be directed by Dexter Fletcher. Now I think yes, it is, it. yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, so that's um, a surprising connection there. But that, so I actually do quite like it, because I'll probably catch up at some point. They probably just, I don't care about Elton John. But if yeah. you're saying, even if you don't, it may be worth watching, then I'll, I'll believe you. You seem a trustworthy fellow for the most part. <laughs> yeah, um, so, well, for me at least, it was the, the songs that it do, does go into any depth are always the ones that are actually a bit less annoying to be. There, there's an earlier stuff like Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting and that kind of thing. So it's That's one of the three. <laughs> one, one of the more, some of the more up-tempo stuff rather than the uh, more modelling nonsense. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, um, worth a go. Yes. Okay, okay. So, seamlessly linking to another film is Aladdin, which is also a film you can see in cinemas. Drew, would you like to tell us about Aladdin? It also has music. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and people. <laughs> Whatever else Walt Disney was, proven or alleged, he was undeniably an artist and cared about the films that his studio produced. The corporation that bears his name, though, is a different matter entirely. Long before its current cultural hegemony, Disney had shown itself to be perhaps the West's single greatest stifler of innovation and artistic expression. With its corporation-friendly, artist-antagonistic pursuit of ever more restrictive copyright legislation having an undeniably deleterious effect on art and culture. However, there have always been artists working within and under Disney's auspices, and the studio has continued to produce beloved animations, almost in spite of itself. Well, beloved that is unless you are me, (laughs) as I think Disney's crap. There are exactly three Disney films I like, with perhaps another three I have some fondness for. Why that in particular is a problem we will get to shortly. 
Disney long ago abdicated stewardship for the artistic integrity of its intellectual property and its current kick of producing live-action remakes or reimaginings of its animated classics isn't much different from its behaviour for decades. Though I will say that, a general distaste for remakes aside, this current trend is much preferable to the interminable second and third-rate direct-to-video-slash-DVD-slash-streaming dreck with which the name Disney was sullied. Though... With not one but two streaming video services to fill now, I suspect we've not yet seen the back of those. Hmm. So what's my point? Good question. I'm (laughs) kind of wondering myself. (laughs) But it's probably to do with Aladdin. The second of three live-action adaptations Disney's putting out this year alone, after Tim Burton's woeful Dumbo earlier this year, and The Lion King, which will drop in just a couple of weeks. Now, Aladdin, see is one of those three Disney animations I actually like. And having been largely let down already by an adaptation of one of the other two, 2016's The Jungle Book, I was apprehensive, to say the least. If you've seen the animated Aladdin, then you know how this film goes, as, apart from fleshing out the character of Jasmine a little, this is largely identical to the original in the broad sweeps, with only the details being different. If you've not seen the original Aladdin then it's a fairly classic tale of Boy with Monkey meets Girl with Tiger. Boy with Monkey uses Magical Blue Man to win Heart of Girl with Tiger and Nasty Man with Pirate tries to ruin everything. And in the end, Boy with Monkey learns an important lesson about true self with songs and elephants. A tale as old as time. Wrong adaptation, Scott. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) All directed by Guy Ritchie? Straight into issues, I guess. Uh, The biggest issue I have with 2019's Aladdin is casting. And I suppose we should first address the elephant in the room. Or at least the magical blue fellow who turns a monkey into an elephant in the room. Will Smith really faced a thankless task as the genie. Not only was Robin Williams a beloved actor, his turn as the genie in the 1992 animation was similarly beloved and really quite iconic. So there was simply no way no matter how good his performance, that he could ever escape the shadow of the late Williams. The revelation, then, is that while he's clearly no Robin Williams, and really he can't sing all that well, Will Smith is the best thing about the film, and by a margin. Hmm. The film, which had been treading water until then, comes alive when the genie is introduced about halfway through, and Smith's charm and comic delivery, while not flawless, lifts everything around it. Elsewhere, things are not so rosy. For all of the busy marketplaces in the royal court, Aladdin has six characters of any impact or importance. It should have had seven, but Gilbert Gottfried's Iago has become just a dumb bird. Though fortunately, Abu the monkey fares somewhat better. I've already mentioned Genie, so that leaves four. The actors playing Aladdin and Jasmine, Mena Masood and Naomi Scott, are both pretty... Table stakes, of course. And they can carry a tune, but they don't radiate charisma. They're fine, but no more. David Negaban's Sultan is a bit of a damp squib. While the animated counterpart was a bumbling oaf, this version is... there, I guess. (laughs) I kept imagining him being played by Nadim Sawala, and that seemed a much better casting to my mind, at least. But we come now to absolutely the biggest problem of the film, the villain. Jafar is a grand vizier, a term nigh on synonymous with cackling megalomaniac. 
The portrayal of such a character can even be over the top, a pantomime-like villain. Indeed, it's perhaps even preferable. Or maybe it calls for whoever the Iraqi equivalent of Charles Dance is. Marwan Kenzari's Jafar, however, is a complete non-entity. A milquetoast villain so insipid and unengaging that he threatens to derail the whole enterprise. On the whole, Aladdin is at best alright, though it does have its moments, and there were enough fun numbers or comic scenes sprinkled throughout, the Prince Ali set piece and the jam scene being the highlights, uh, to keep it moving. And also, just I've noticed how odd it is that I've described a jam scene. I feel in terms of a jam scene, but it's a great scene with jam, so they're, <laughs> uh, to keep it, uh, it's got enough bits to keep it moving and ensure a passable level of entertainment. Had Will Smith not been in such good form, though, then this could have ended very differently. The biggest issue I have at the end is why? And it's a weary why, a why to which I, everyone already knows the answer. Money. Well, money and the lack of imagination or willingness to take a risk. The original animated Aladdin wasn't done in cartoon form because the technology didn't exist to successfully make it another way. It was made that way because it's a specific art form, one in which the studio was founded. Also, cartoons, especially cartoons set a millennia ago, don't age. But, wait, that should be millennium. <laughs> Millennials are plural. Surely, surely it should be a willennium. <laughs> yes. Also, cartoons, especially when set a millennium ago, which may as well have been a millennium ago, it seems so long, don't age. But exist it does, and you can certainly do worse with your time than watch a lad in 2019, even if doing so potentially encourages this sort of nonsense. Yes, well, as best as I can gather, this is Disney's latest wheeze to extend copyright, so um, whether you encourage them or not, they'll still keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I award this fine out of ten. Um, yeah, that's uh, I, yeah I, I watched it, it was pleasant. I don't really have a lot of love for Aladdin. It's, it is, of the Disney stuff I've seen, it is probably the best, but I just haven't really given it a lot of thought in the last... 30 years or whatever, and um, yeah, it's just not really been a, a touchstone for me. Um, however, this is perfectly fine. Um, I agree with exactly what you're saying. The, the, uh, the villain, the Grand Vizier, is like a, a total damp squib, and he's what, 18, 19, or something like that. He just he, he does not have the gravitas that is demanded of that kind of villainous role. <laughs> and it's, it's entertaining enough. Uh, Will Smith's good. I think he does as well as anyone could possibly do in that role, unless you took a a radically different take on the genie, which would then make it a very different film. Indeed, you can't have a a sad, sarcastic, depressed genie or anything like that. So he needs to have the same sort of energy that uh, Robin Williams brought, and he kind of does as well as anyone can to emulate that while put his own spin on it. And uh, it it, it works better than... It works better than you'd have anticipated from seeing the poster a while back that was roundly ridiculed on Twitter. Um, the, The kind of... Effects work actually for for him in context looks absolutely fine. Um, the the whole kind of blue guy thing does not look terrible, and no, he doesn't look like a yeah. cartoon dropped into anything. Like somehow they yeah. managed to pull that off. Yes, which uh, certainly the, the posters did not think may not have given you confidence that, that would have happened, but they've pulled it off, and yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I, it's it's sort of sad that this exists in a way, but mm-hmm. just just because it's it's clearly something done out of a business case rather than any clear love for the medium or anything in it. But it's 
okay, I guess they've they've managed not to screw it up. So they should be applauded for that. If they are going to do this kind of thing, at least they've not made a mess of it. So that's something, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, though the, they don't have the best track record, though. Uh, I mentioned Dumbo. Have you seen Tim Burton's Dumbo? <laughs> no. Uh, I watched that uh, yesterday, the day before. Having, Lord, why? Uh, well, because I watched Aladdin, and I was, it, was, it was better than I expected. And I thought, right, I'm in the mood for watching the original Aladdin, which I did the next day. Like, yeah, mm. I still really enjoy this one. There's literally three Disney films I actually like. Really enjoyed it, and I thought, yep, yeah, so clearly far better than the animated version, but uh, sorry, the live action version. Mm. Good. Uh, had a side effect of having my every waking moment now soundtracked by friend like me song by Robert yeah. Williams so every time I'm not thinking of something I'd hear it in the back of my head and it will not go away yeah. uh, and then I thought I'd sort of forgotten about Dumbo uh, it seemed to come and go quite quickly and I thought I'll, I'll give it a go now as I've said I'm not the biggest Disney fan uh, and it's a long time since I've seen Dumbo but I'm pretty convinced that Dumbo the film Dumbo is about the elephant Dumbo Dumbo yes I remember that much, at least. Yes, not the Tim Burton version, <laughs> in which the elephant is almost a MacGuffin. It's certainly a secondary <laughs> or tertiary character. It's all about some really dull humans instead. Oh, good. Yeah. So that that was fun. That was a complete waste of my time. So thanks for that, Tim. <laughs> um, so that's terrible. The, um, the Lion King. I don't like the animation to begin with, and it, it kind of looks like they're just trying to. From the few clips and screenshots I've seen of the Lion King, it kind of looks like they've tried to do almost a almost a scene for scene remake, but it seems to have taken any of the charm out of it. Hmm. So, uh, Beauty and the Beast was surprisingly good, maybe because I didn't like the animation. That's why I found that one more rude. You liked that as well, though, Scott? Yes, yeah. I did. Yes. Um, but yeah, the Jungle Book, uh, Christopher Walken's. King Louis was kind of scary, which that character should be, and that worked quite well. Bill Murray, well, Bill Murray's been an autopilot for 25 years, so yeah. <laughs> much as I like him, it's still it's not fantastic. But yeah, The Jungle Book, also pretty poor. Hmm. I watched it at the time, and I don't remember hating it, but I cannot remember a damn thing about it <laughs> now. Um, no. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's not, a, not something that's uh, stuck in the mind the way that even frames of the, the animation did uh, yeah it's it's just less suited for that kind of book in particular than even Aladdin was so yeah not not Disney's finest hour yeah and seeing animals talking never looks good no yeah it's um, imagine they've managed to pull it off a bit better in the last couple of years various films than even just a few years before that but it, it never looks quite right it's a cartoon you don't think about it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that this film could have been an absolute mess. It is actually it's decent enough. I did find it quite entertaining, though it drops precipitously any time Will Smith's not on screen. Right, he is carrying a lot of of Aladdin. Yes, yes, he does. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it looks nice. It's really colourful. I say a couple of set pieces are particularly good. The Prince Ali one in particular, mm-hmm. um, but it's just. Again, it comes back to it's just so pointless. They originally existed. And yeah. there's better. You didn't need to do this. Do something else. 
And if it is for a copyright extension thing, then that just that just makes me angry. Mm. That's beyond cynical. Welcome. Let me introduce you to Disney. Yes. <laughs> is, is beyond right? cynical is very much on brand for them at the minute. So yeah, yeah. but I. <laughs> deeply dislike Disney. I think they're genuinely a net negative for culture mm. and artistry. <laughs> At least as a corporation, not necessarily the all the products they've made or anything. But yeah. Anyway, I, I spend quite a lot of time whinging about Disney. Um, <laughs> legitimately, but still, I imagine it could be a bit tiresome for anybody listening. So, uh, I think we should move on a bit to Godzilla. Yes. Monsters, Scott. Monsters. Yes, and Godzilla, King of Monsters. So gather round, children, as I relate unto thee the complex and labyrinthine plot of Godzilla 2, as it was called in some posters, and a cruel mockery of all known counting systems. There am some monsters, and they do fights and that. <laughs> Seven out of ten. Well, okay, there's a little more to it, but none of it is why you'd watch a monster flick. So, uh, namely, there's lots of them, they're humans, scurrying about like they are in some way more interesting than the skyscraper-sized monsters suplexing each other. Humans like Vera Famiga's uh, Dr. Emma Russell, a scientist for the shadowy Titan studying group Monarch, who goes off the reservation, and alongside eco-terrorist and, to be honest, afterthought, Charles Dance's <laughs> Alan Jonah, sets about freeing all-known Titans across the world in the hopes that this will wind humanity's neck in a little and allow the planet's ecosystem to recover. What remains of Monarch attempts to stop this with a personal interest for Kyle Chandler's Dr. Mark Russell, the estranged husband of Emma, dealing with the collateral loss of one of his kids in the last Godzilla attack, leaving him ill-disposed to the big fella. He's now worried about the safety of Millie Bobby Brown's Madison Russell, his other kid, currently on the lam with her mother. There's also some talk about a device that communicates slash controls Titans, a thistle whistle, I think it was called. But <laughs> this is a Oh, that's a deep cut. <laughs> Uh, but then, this is a film where Ken Watanabe climbs an underwater Mayan temple to offer a nuclear missile to a dinosaur god, so maybe science isn't exactly its strongest suit as to offer, and we should just nod politely and move on. Indeed, has it's a slow exploding one. That, that's important to note, Scott. It's a slow exploding nuclear <laughs> yes. missile that can let people get away from it. Well, it's because it was under underground in secret tunnels, you see. <laughs> Uh, indeed, had this film been approached by Michael Doherty, uh, the director, in the same manner as Gareth Edwards' boring Godzilla from a few years back, it would have been a dumpster fire. Uh, that film was either ashamed it was a kaiju movie, so often did it hide away its star and only attraction, or else taking entirely the wrong lesson from horror movie monsters. This film, while still having far more human interaction than is strictly necessary or advisable, does at least deliver more on the monsters knocking lumps out of each other front. The visual stylings may be a little bit mermaidy, I suppose, but I was rather fond of the various atmospheric conditions that provide a bit more of a dramatic backdrop for the action than the sunny blue skies, and I think it delivers quite well on these battle scenes, enough for me to like this an awful lot. Easily much more than the first, hash brackets, not even remotely first, Godzilla film, <laughs> or Kong Skull Island, or Shin Godzilla for that matter, uh, the Japanese uh, outing from a couple of years back. Now, it is a very long way from perfect. You're going to have to tune out a lot of very poorly sketched and motivated humans bumbling about in the foreground to really enjoy this, but I guess it caught me in the correct frame of mind. Um, I had very few expectations for this film, and again, it, it exceeded them both. It had enough monsters punching other monsters for me to like it, and not enough annoying humans to get in the way um, your mileage may vary but uh, yeah I, I enjoyed it quite a bit I thought it was fine uh, I enjoyed it it's I would have liked a bit less atmospheric nonsense to be honest some of that was fine but you know every fight taking place and all this cloud and stuff yeah so yeah a couple of um, fights in broad daylight might have been nice 
Yeah, they could have done that with an opportunity. I mean, it's, it's sort of explained a bit by. Uh, don't, I don't think you mentioned like Kid, Kid uh, King. What's his name? Kid, King Ghidorah. Ghidorah. Um, yeah. So, is an apparently alien Titan who's you know fighting Godzilla for supremacy over the Earth. So I didn't go into a lot of detail in the plot because it's Godzilla. Movie, which, um, yeah, but he's also sort of his superpower appears to be also like controlling weather systems at the same time. So um, it does have some backup, but there's plenty of fights with other monsters that could have done with a bit more uh, <laughs> blue sky. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um but that said, it's a massive step up over the 2014 film, which I watched again after I'd seen this in the cinema. And, <laughs> oh, that was a chore. What a miserable experience that film is. <laughs> yeah. Because it's full of these things that aren't monsters. Um, yeah. Which is a weird thing to have in your monster film. Now, <laughs> so a non-monster monster film can work. Uh, look at Cloverfield, for instance. Which works really well, and you only see sort of bits and pieces of the monster because the whole thing's a mystery. That's kind of the point. Godzilla's not a mystery. In fact, the the twenty fourteen film takes great pains to point out how much not of a mystery Godzilla is because yes. they've been tracking him for seventy years, <laughs> know quite a lot about him. But then, are we going to see him? No, we're just going to spend time with Aaron Taylor Bland and his incredibly bland and insipid soldier man. Mm, and all yeah. the other boring uniformed soldier men who are definitely characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this film, it has a bit of that because the whole domestic drama that's going on with Vera Farmiga yeah. and Kyle Chandler, it's, it's even more bland and tiresome than that was in the first film. Yeah, um, it's it's easily the worst thing about this film is when you try and build any sort of empathy for those particular characters. It's like no, you're you're just too thinly sketched for me to care about. Yeah. And uh, it did manage to win me over a little bit with the rest of the characters when when they're doing the sort of a supposed necessary sort of expositiony type. Oh my god, now he's going over there, sort of stuff. <laughs> that all that thing managed to somehow not be as annoying as it could have been. Yeah. Um, those characters are at least somewhat fun, but yeah, the whole actual trying to build any kind of connection and emotion through it. Like nah, I, I just came to see the monsters fight, mate. Just yeah. sit down. <laughs> yeah, Vera Farmiga as well. Also, her motivations make no sense. And then that she does a terrible thing and gets to be redeemed for the end, which is entirely undeserved. Yeah. And then, yeah, well, the big problems I'm looking at: like Millie Bobby Brown and Kelly Chandler and Vera Farmiga and Bradley Whitford and even Charles Dance. I'm thinking, you're not monsters. Mm-hmm. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> when I watch Formula One racing, there's an incredible tendency. It, moments of like drama for the camera shots to cut away to people in the pits or something doing a family member watching or worse a celebrity mm. and I find myself screaming at the film but you don't have an engine or to the screen you don't have an engine um, I don't care about you uh, and I feel largely the same about things mm-hmm. in Godzilla it's like if you're not a monster I don't care um, <laughs> so yeah expecting me to care about the humans in a Godzilla film it's like me watching a, a war film expecting me to care about the insects that the tanks roll over mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you're missing the point yeah uh, so yeah it's a bit of a silly film but it's fun there's enough set pieces of monsters knocking seven bells out of each other that it's entertaining I still prefer uh, Shin Gojira I think because I kind of like the fact that there's no like human characters in that really no, so, so it's more like a, um, it's like trying a to be a documentary response. sort of thing. Yeah, of, almost, almost. Yeah, uh, and that works better. 
Uh, and also there's the fact that it's... Oh, sod. I can't remember. Is it Hideki Anno? Neon, Evan- Neon Genesis Evangelion guy, anyway, that directed it. And mm. it has a sort of live-action Neon Genesis Evangelion feel to it, which I appreciate. But either way, it's, it's a, a massive step up over the 2014 film in which it was a Godzilla film in which they forgot to put Godzilla. Yes. Uh, <laughs> although, I mean, I've seen, heard other people say it too. And I think even in Japan, it's so long now since the end of World War Two that I don't think that same tension remains. But it doesn't really work in the same way as an American film because that tension of fear of nuclear war and the actual aftermath of that yeah. doesn't exist anywhere but Japan. It can't, fortunately, but it can't. So it still, still seems strange to me that it has become this big American film. Yeah, I'm not sure if I had a particular point there. It just strikes me as odd that the, the biggest Godzilla films are now American. Yeah. <laughs> it's just odd. And there's like one token Japanese man in it. But yeah, I still enjoyed it. Although I could have done without some of the really hokey dialogue, like how Godzilla's built into critical mass. Like, you don't understand what mass is, do you? But okay. <laughs> <laughs> And Bradley Whitford's weird conspiracy theory guy. I yeah. guess that's meant to be comic relief, but it wasn't comical. Yeah, yeah. But but big monsters hitting other big monsters. I'm I'm down for that. Although the attempts to shoehorn in the references to King Kong and create a monster cinematic universe are pretty ham-fisted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and somewhat unnecessary. Yeah, but yeah. Say a lot of films these days, I suppose. Dissenting opinion from the Twitter uh, at Sonic Yoda uh, says that King of Monsters has a lot of problems, boring one dimensional characters, a complete lack of scale at the 2014 film pulled off so well. The whole thing feels like it's a mad rush to introduce as many monsters as possible, which is kind of weird because that's what a lot of original Toho Godzilla films are like. It's probably the most accurate American take on the franchise so far, but mainly because a lot of the Toho films are so flawed anyway. Uh, that's certainly a take. <laughs> I don't feel like a fight, so <laughs> I won't say the bits that I didn't like. But yes, uh, Godzilla 2014, no. <laughs> no. no I really, I found that film an absolute chore to watch again, so I'm not sure why I did that, but there we go. <laughs> I did. Um, I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently. But monsters. Moving on to another seamlessly linked film, Booksmart. Because there are books about monsters. Nail it. And you could buy them in a books marked. Failed it. <laughs> shop book, shop books, mark. No. I'd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Films set in... You know, one day we'll actually manage a good slink. <laughs> one day. And then we'll die happy. <laughs> uh Films set in US high schools tend to bother me, as they are almost invariably utterly alien places filled with 20-year-olds, at least half of whom will be absolutely loaded. Debut director Olivia Wilde's coming-of-age comedy book, Smart, is set in a high school filled with 22-23-year-olds, to 23 year olds, and <laughs> the odd almost 30-year-old, several of whom are loaded and who behave in a completely alien and unrelatable way that US high school students do, at least on film. <laughs> This worried me at first, but it turns out that Booksmart is basically super bad with girls, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. 
There really isn't that much of a plot. Best friends Amy, Caitlin Deaver and Molly, Beanie Feldstein, have devoted themselves entirely to schoolwork, eschewing parties and other extracurricular fun, but when they discover the day before graduation that, contrary to their assumptions, the people who went to the parties and had fun also did well in school, they try to fit in several years' worth of mis-socialising into one crazy night. There are fallings out, truth-tellings, new experiences, and everything else you would expect from such a film. The praise for the film has been fulsome and ebullient, and while much of it is in fact hyperbolic, it is a fun, funny and kind-hearted film that I can absolutely recommend. Much of this is due to the chemistry between the leads, who became as close on set as their characters are in the film. An energetic soundtrack, which pleased me no end by featuring Handsome Boy Modelling School's Holy Calamity, and music by Handsome Boy Modelling School's Danny Automator helps things along, even if it is a little prescriptive at times. About 50% of them, in fact. Mm. First-time director Wilde produces a remarkably cohesive film from a script by four screenwriters, and while the themes of not judging people and treating people with respect are both somewhat heavy-handed and incredibly obvious, its heart is absolutely in the right place, and there's plenty of humour throughout. Definitely one to check out. Yes, I award this funny film out of ten. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I genuinely don't have anything more to add other than what you say there. I would completely just echo that. Yes, it's all very well good-natured. Uh, very funny. Um, I'd... I, as you say, the, the, it has been getting a lot of praise. I was kind of expecting it to be maybe a little bit funnier than it actually wound up being, but it certainly was still more than funny enough to be worth um, investing time into it. So, yeah, no no complaints about it at all. Uh, yeah, very well worth watching. Good comedy. I liked it. Uh, yes, good soundtrack as well, yes. Uh, yes. And no, that's, that is it. I, I genuinely don't have anything more to say about it. It's a really funny comedy, and uh, yeah, you should watch it if you like funny comedies, and if you don't, what kind of monster are you? There, we brought it back around, Drew. We've got it back around. We call that a callback in the business. <laughs> <laughs> so, seamless linking device, I am mother. <laughs> As I ever mentioned, 12 years we've been busting our asses, <laughs> film podcasters. Do you see how that time has paid off? <laughs> we may have given up lately. I'm not sure what's going on. So it's another Netflix science fiction film. Wait, no, come back. It might not be another Mute or Cloverfield Paradox or The Titan. It might be another Annihilation or... Okay, the odds aren't good, I'll admit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here, in a Fallout-esque vault, a robot who will come to know his mother, voiced by Rose Byrne, hatches a human egg child who will, in the fullness of time, grow up to be Clara Rugard's daughter. There's been an extinction-level event of some non-specific contagion, maybe, we're told, or alluded to, at least, and mother seeks to raise a new generation of earthlings in the safety of the sealed vault. Daughter is a practice run, so to speak, before hatching a new batch. As such, daughter was being trained in the difficult areas of philosophy and empathy and will be tested on her progress. Just for fun, you understand, nothing sinister at all. However, the equilibrium of the vault is thrown when a strange woman appears at the door in the shape of Hilary Swank's air woman. Look, script, names are a thing you can use. Uh, she brings with her tales of robots ran amok, killing people, and agitates for daughter leaving this facility immediately, and, well, I suppose the rest should be given spoiler warnings, but it's a science fiction film with artificial intelligence. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. However, it's a well enough written film, combined with a spiky turn from Swank, that did at least have me thinking that it might be about to do something a little less obvious in places before, well, not doing that. (laughs) Um, You you could perhaps argue that the rationale for the AI's actions gets a fairer shake here than other similar 
films, but it's not moving too far away from the genre's tropes. Um, you can draw a straight line between a few influences here, taking a bit from Moon and a lot from Ex Machina, uh, but they're all good wells to draw from, and I Am Mother winds up a net positive with some solid performances, a decent enough story that in the end doesn't perhaps fully actualise on its intriguing first third setup, and it has some pretty decent production design to tie it all together. It's Nothing like as intriguing as Annihilation, but it's much closer to it in terms of quality than another mute, so that's nice. Um, yeah, it's another perfectly fine film. I enjoyed it well enough. Um, I, I, it's hard to get all that excited about it, but it delivered more or less what I was expecting, I guess, and it's fine. Uh, yes, Drew, what do you make of it? It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I know it's easy to get a bit sort of weary and cynical and jaded about films with artificial intelligence <laughs> yes. being bad for humans but well once you've seen one you kind of feel yes. seen them all it's, <laughs> it's, I'm sometimes conscious of the fact that we've been on Earth's Earth for like 8 or 9 millennia now Yeah, uh, we've seen a lot more films than people younger than ourselves so it can be easy that something looks really obvious and I actually know maybe I think this because I've seen so many films. Yeah. But when it comes to this particular trope, well, no, it's yes. basically you've seen a film or heard of any other film, you know that it's likely. Yes. But, um, <laughs> and I suppose we should be grateful that it didn't have a red glowing eye. <laughs> may yes. as well have done because you yeah. knew where the film was going. At. And I, I would have liked it to have gone somewhere different. Yeah. It's especially because the last action of the film just it angered me quite frankly because what well, didn't make a whole lot of sense um and also it kind of it undercut any other possibility for anything else happening earlier yeah um yeah that was that was weird because there are other bits of the the world building that left me with questions why is everything why is this robot human shaped yeah, um, if you're it's there to raise humans, but unless it looks like a human, it could look like anything. I don't. So sort of kind of mechanical questions like that. So it's a strange production. Like why it would have that, and then why all the great plans can be undone by the fact that an adolescence curious and slightly rebellious. But that, that that's entirely unprecedented. <laughs> um, but I don't know, that last bit of the film always makes it seem like that was intended to, and no, 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 that's just stupid. But it's, you know, it looks nice, it's well produced, it's interesting. It's not as clever as I think it thinks it is. It's not asking any big questions, it's not really exploring the human condition or anything in the, in the way that it would be nice if it did. Yeah. But, again, it's not mute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's a pretty decent film, it's entertaining, it's nice to see that sort of level of sci-fi even if in many ways as you said Scott it's kind of if not derivative then its influences are really quite obvious yeah um, it's just yeah no I don't want to be too negative on it I enjoyed it I just kind of was a bit disappointed in the end as they do something different or at least if you're going to do the same thing that every other film has done do it differently yeah yeah, it was all very familiar all the way throughout it. It's, uh, 
<sighs> yeah, that, that, that if anything else is, is the most disappointing thing about it because uh, there are moments where it's fainting at doing something a bit more interesting, and I think it's I think that it's trying to get that with the sort of ending, but it doesn't really achieve it. All it's when you think about it in any de- detail, it's not actually changed anything. The, the ending of this film is just the it's, it's trying to give you a small emotional high before trying to cut that away at the end, um, and it's like well, yeah, but nothing. It didn't make a lot. Of, so dancing around it, sorry to say, without spoiling it. But uh, yeah, it's it, it has an ending that, as you say, just seems to be thinking that it's quite clever and actually isn't, and is really just the same restatement of everything it has been doing for the last hour and a half. So yeah, not not quite the twist ish thing it seemed to think it was. Yes, unfortunately, I mean it probably goes on a little too long. I don't, I'd kind of like to. Have seen a bit more of the world I and mean, that's maybe budgetary as well but it's like yeah i mean it's sort of it's somewhere between the terminator and the matrix yeah and it's like there's some interesting things there and like and uh, i don't know it's it's a very empty world because there are only two people in it plus yeah. um rose burns not at all skynet mm-hmm. uh, but um again sometimes that's budgetary too yeah, um, I think in this case it's more the concept. These humans are very, very alone. Yeah, it's uh, definitely interesting enough to watch, though. Yes. So I, I, I really try not to talk it down. I did enjoy it. Just I, I, I'm more frustrated because I'm I'm dissatisfied by it. I want more. Not that it. Not so much that it's a bad film. It's like I just wish it was a better film. Yeah, uh, that it has intriguing elements spotted around in it that. You kind of wish it got its teeth into those rather than just reverting back to the standard AI story at the end. Uh, yeah, uh, a little disappointing in that regard. But yeah, it's very well executed in what it's, if what it's doing. It's just something I've seen executed many times before. So no matter how well it can do it, it just felt awfully familiar. Uh, but yeah, I, again, the, the more talk about the the more negative I'm sounding. But I didn't didn't really mean that. It's it's an enjoyable enough film and it's worth spending. Two hours was it? Um, ish. It's, a, it's about two hours, I think. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an entertaining enough two hours, and it's well worth popping on your Netflix queue for some point if you have any interest in science fiction. Uh, yeah, it, it may seem familiar, but that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Um, yeah, solid film, but yeah, hard to get too excited about. Yeah, yes. Sometimes you'll take what you can get, particularly again when it comes to Netflix and our um, track record with yes <laughs> with science fiction, just not brilliant. So, you know, in saying show business, you're supposed to save the best to last. Well, we've saved X-Men Dark Phoenix for last. Yes, mm. um, <laughs> largely because at some point I may want to get into spoilers, but I could talk a wee bit about it before I get that far. But that, that was very much there for that reason rather than yes. it being the best thing <laughs> we're going to talk about today. A family drive down a quiet road sometime in the 1970s while the troubled but powerful child in the back seat has some sort of episode, causing the car to crash spectacularly. The child in the back seat doesn't grow up to be Mark Strong and Shazam, however, <laughs> but Jean Grey, which threw me as I have definitely seen almost exactly this opening gambit already this year. <laughs> Fast forward to the 1990s, and after receiving a direct call from the US President on the special X phone, that is absolutely not a bat phone, <laughs> James McAvoy's Professor Xavier dispatches the X-Men into space to rescue the astronauts aboard a stricken NASA space shuttle. While the rescue is successful, Sophie Turner's Jean Grey is imbued, infected, implanted, with some sort of mystical space stuff. It makes her go a bit scatty. 
a bunch of shape-shifting aliens land on Earth shortly after the X-Men return, where one of them takes on the identity of Jessica Chastain's person in clothes with hair. (laughs) And they seek out Jean because they want the mystical, magical space stuff so they can conquer Earth and create a new home for themselves after the space stuff destroyed their last home. Or something. (laughs) At the same time, Jean is lashing out at her friends killing one of them and causing a few to get a bit pissed and want to kill her. And she's dangerous and angry and powerful until she isn't and suddenly they have to band together again to fight Jessica Chastain's totally a character honest. (laughs) X-Men Dark Phoenix is a spectacularly underwhelming film that somehow manages to be worse than X-Men The Last Stand. Uh, Though not in its entirety as it, for instance, scores a solid win for a complete absence of Vinnie Jones. (laughs) The fact that its ending had to be hurriedly reshot because its original space-based super magic woman finale was too similar to Captain Marvel may have played into its favour as the confined setting for its showdown is definitely more interesting. But the climactic moment very much left me feeling... Uh, uh, is, is that it? Now, here's why I inevitably get nitpicky and also spoilery, so if you don't want to know one particular specific of the film... Look away now. Or something. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yes, say, going to get, never get nitpicky. But Dark Phoenix's errors are so glaring that if there were nits this big, I'm never sleeping again and shaving all my hair off just in case. <laughs> uh, first of all, this. I wanted to say that the writer of this film is a hack. And I thought, hmm, no, wait. I best look up what. This um, writer, who's also the director, his, his first time directing, um, has done. No, this screenwriter's a hack. <laughs> uh, he's responsible for, well, Days of Future Past was actually a good X-Men film. This is the same man who wrote X-Men The Last Stand. <laughs> I'm still with that draft out sitting around on his computer. And Triple X2, State of Emergency, you know, the Ice Cube one. Uh. <laughs> And the 2015 Fantastic Four. Mm. And the X-Men Apocalypse. Mm. So, yeah, that's not so good. <laughs> right. So the whole idea of this film is that Jean Grey is really powerful, lashes out at people, causes lots of havoc. She kills a single person in this film. One. Hmm. One entire person. And since it's Jennifer Lawrence's character... I'm pretty much on board with her killing her because she's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> the character's deeply unlikable, particularly in this film. Talking of Jennifer Lawrence in this film, who, um, in that deeply unprofessional way of actors who are getting paid millions to perform a role that they don't want to do, well, just you're getting paid to do it, be a professional. But um, yeah. she's clearly unhappy to be here um, and also is involved in perhaps the most irritating scene in the entire film, where perhaps in some lame attempt to be woke uh, an angry mystique screams at Professor Xavier why don't you consider renaming the X-Men the X-Women especially because all of the saving around here has been done by women immediately after every single person including Jean Grey was rescued by a man and also they were working together as a team but anyway she dies so yay um, <laughs> And yeah, so that happens quite early on, actually. And the problem is there are 
there aren't really any stakes in this film and there's no it should be like filled to the brim with death the whole idea that Jean Grey has been taken over by this mysterious incredibly powerful space stuff and she should be a danger to herself to her friends to humans Uh, but no nothing really happens Uh, which is strange it's so low key as to be pointless which is strange too because the the whole idea on the other side of it is that Professor Xavier is trying to save humans and use the mutants to save humans to basically save mutants the idea that he proposes is that we are just one bad day away from them turning on us do you remember what it used to be like and then the film decides that that whole one bad day metaphor was an actual literal one yeah. bad day <laughs> in which case the government has clearly secretly been developing mutant suppression techniques and technologies and now I assume it stands for Marvel Control Unit but I cannot help but think there's some sort of less than subtle note here the fact that the uniformed government operatives who suppress the mutants and anything they're doing have uniforms in which reads MCU hmm. yeah it's uh, yeah they turn so one bad thing happens and then literally all the laws change in a day <laughs> um, so th- this this kind of metaphorical idea becomes literal and it just it made me angry in common with Marvel films don't seem to understand time uh, it's something I've mentioned several times before particularly like the Age of Ultron was the long weekend of Ultron in this case you have the presumably tortured Jean Grey saying oh please stop it I, I can't stand it all those things happened to me yeah but this is like literally like seven or eight hours after you had this bad thing happen to you in space <laughs> you know it's like and then a day and a half later she's running away saying I can't stand all this but like it's a day and a half <laughs> everything's so compressed so yeah this this film doesn't really know what it is or what it's doing because nothing seems to matter then you have Jessica Chastain at one point tell it, she wants to get suck all of the magic space juice out of Jean Grey and she says, your emotions make you weak while saying it with emotion, because I guess this was written by the same sort of people who um, write Vulcans and Star Trek, you know, impossibly. <laughs> uh, so I, I know I'm rambling here, but I, just, I had so many thoughts going through my head, um, I couldn't really easily put them down because everything about this film is wrong, <laughs> <laughs> um, including the fact that at the end of the film, everybody collectively has amnesia, because everything's just as it was at the start. Uh-huh what okay <laughs> and i don't know it's just, i don't think the x-men franchise has ever really settled on quite how powerful magneto's supposed to be two films ago he lifted an entire football stadium or possibly baseball stadium i forget exactly which in this film he's struggling with a helicopter because in these X-Men films, Magneto's power scales to exactly what the plot requires at any mm. given point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Jean Grey is supposed to feel um, well, supposed to be in some great relationship with Cyclops. And in the original Brian Singer film, Wolverine rocks up at the house and you're basically told these people are in a relationship. 
And that's fine, actually. You don't then you, you can have assume a certain level of intimacy between them. You assume a backstory, that's fine. And then they play the tension between James Marsden, Cyclops, and your man Hughes, Wolverine, um, quite well. And this, it comes from nowhere. Um, it doesn't help that Ty Sheridan's an incredibly bland character, um, a bland actor. And they're supposed to believe there's some great relationship between them that there was never any precedent for. So that's a problem. Um, and then Jean Grey doesn't really do anything bad. And in X-Men The Last Stand, she was like trying to basically destroy the world. <laughs> you know, she was killing people and um, like actual meaningful deaths. And then in this film, it's like, uh, I'm really bad, I hate you all. No, no, I tried to help you. Oh, all right then, I'm not bad anymore. Uh, and it's honestly, it's of that level. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to stop that. I'm just wittering and moaning and whining, um, and it's not going to make for a good listening, so I'm sorry. It's just... It's a film that has less stakes than X-Men The Last Stand. Do you need to know more? <laughs> it's like X-Men The Last Stand for all its problems. There are interesting things in there. Actually, kind of apart from the, the Phoenix thing, because that, that film has in the background running the mutant registration thing and the the serum that people could decide to basically not be mutants. All the really interesting stuff that X-Men does about identity and whether people should hide and stuff themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Dark Phoenix has none of that. It has Jessica Chastain, who is definitely a character in this film. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a subway car pulled out of the subway to the street. Meh. <laughs> yeah. So I need to stop myself now. This works a lot better if you've seen it as well and you haven't, so this is a problem. <laughs> Had you seen it, this um, this wouldn't feel so ridiculously um, disjointed and one-sided. Mm. Yeah, it, it, yeah, as I was saying earlier, it's not really enthused me to go and see this film. Um, I, I have a pet theory that Disney wound up buying Fox because they saw what they were doing to the X-Men franchise and thought, these people know how to extend copyright licensing deals purely <laughs> through dint of not of just making, just forcing films out even when they don't really have any good ideas for them. And that, that seems to be what's happened with the X-Men franchise and sometimes it's produced a halfway decent film but in terms of the artistry of it, they really ought to have stopped with Logan. Um, you know, the Days of Future Past was like a nice way to kind of tie together the actually half-decent um, earlier sort of young X-Men type films uh, like the first class and tying that with the older X-Men films and that all kind of worked quite well and then Logan's a nice way to send off the, the kind of most longest running character the one that had its own little side stories and yeah, Apocalypse really wasn't there's, there's no idea behind that film other than let's do another X-Men film and yeah. it sounds like the, uh, Dark Phoenix is very much let's do another X-Men film even though we don't have an idea we'll just use one of the old ones no one will notice and um, yeah that, I imagine the completionist me will mean that I'll watch this at some point but it's certainly not going to be high up in any list of films no. that I want to watch no, it's it's strange what it does with its characters well, f- well first of all uh, you mentioned the timeline and, and Days of Future Past which like I'm Despite it being written by the same guy, I'm not convinced he watched his other film. <laughs> because the end of Days of Future Past, the whole idea is that the future's going to be bad. And the whole point of that was to tie the two things together. So the first class timeline and the Brian Singer timeline. Mm. Right? 
And it did that because that Wolverine went back to meet those people, Jennifer Lawrence and um, the kid from About a Boy who plays the Beast, whose name completely escapes me right now. That's Nick really Holt. irritating. Nick Holt? Nick, Nick Holt, thank you. Yeah. I knew it began with the name, but I can only think of Nigel because of the discussion we were having <laughs> earlier. Uh, Nick Cole and everybody. So he meets them, and then, he, then that film ends with him going back and Gene Grey being alive again and everything being okay. And like, well, that surely that means that should be that timeline now. Yeah. Except it's now not. It's apparently completely separate, so there's a third one. And yeah. what's going on? <laughs> uh, but then it, just, it doesn't know what to do with its characters. Um, there was... There were, well, there were a couple of places where um, one which I actually swore it loud and I, I hate myself for doing it because I was in the cinema <laughs> uh, but it was I don't know if it hurt me but um, that Nicholas Holt's character of the Beast is has been in love with Mystique now that actually existed for a couple of films so that relationship's been there from, since first class actually mm. so unlike the Cyclops Jean Grey one that wasn't just plucked out of nowhere that's been building he's really upset that she dies um, and then he starts blaming Professor X, who just basically gets thrown um, under the bus, as I think um, half of the bad guys put it, mm. uh, in this film. Because like, suddenly, out of nowhere, they decide that this is all about his ego. <laughs> he's quite clearly trying to save mutants. I mean, as he yes. pointed out about like the whole one bad day thing, which proved to be not just prophetic, <laughs> 100% accurate, Um <laughs> And then they started blaming him for all the stuff. Like, where did that come from? It doesn't make any sense. Why are you treating this character so badly? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... It's an absolute mess of a film. I mean, the fact it had to redo its ending may not have helped, but to be honest, I can't really see how it would have made that much of a difference, hmm. given everything running up to it is such a mess. So, yeah, for, let, enough of that. It's not good, which is... <laughs> And first class was quite fun. I like Days of Future Past a lot, um, and I sort of consider Logan almost a separate film. Whereas, but yeah. X Two, I generally thought it was a really good film, and then the rest of them are all varying degrees of terrible. Yeah, yeah. Lots of ups, lots of downs. Um, this one, this one sounds like it's most definitely a down. So, yes, um, yes, it is. It is not good. Do not watch it. Well, if you've seen the others, yeah, for completion's sake. Probably, but you know, any time this side of twenty thirty, I'll do you. Yeah, I'll watch it, but I won't feel particularly proud of myself for doing it. <laughs> but so, yes, that will wrap us up for tonight. Thank you very much for your attention. If you want to get in touch with us, you can from this any other any other reason you can do so on Facebook at facebook.com slash fuds on film or the main one, of course, these days is the Twitter at fuds on film slash Twitter or at Fuds on Films. I think people know it understand how to use Twitter these days, I suppose. Um, if you're old school enough, uh, podcast at fuzzonfilm.com is the email address. But until next time, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew Tavendale shall do too. Fairly well. Now, in cinemas, from the visionary director of gangster classic Snatch and lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. Featuring unique takes on the Disney classics like A Whole New World. I can show you the world. 
Shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? Prince Ali. Saleh, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa. Genuflect, show some respect, down on one knee. Now try your best to stay calm, brush up your Sunday salon. Then come and meet his spectacular Kiltari. And friend like me. Job, you big nibble. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend like me. <laughs> you ain't never had a friend like me. Guy Richie's Aladdin. Get the soundtrack on minidisc and a track from Tower Records. Available now. Don't you dare close your eyes.